You're listening to the Footnotes Podcast, the weekly sermon companion from the teaching team at Real Life. This is a chance to dig a little deeper, chase a few rabbit trails, and touch on some topics that the team may have not been able to fit into their Sunday sermons. We hope this provides a glimpse behind the scenes at the discussion that helps form each week's message. Welcome to Footnotes. I am Paul, the Moscow student pastor here at Real Life, joined this week with Derek Murphy. How's it going, guys? And Marty Solomon. Greetings and salutations. And that scratching sound you hear is Kevin. What's up? (laughs) All right, so we started our new series on Leviticus. We only got about six weeks on this, so by the time you're hearing this, you've already heard the intro to Leviticus. So we we wanted to do this week is just have a little bit of discussion about priesthood and about some um, other kind of flowish things we see with Leviticus. Uh, but before we get too far, I, I want to remind everyone to check out our reading schedule online. Uh, if you go to lifeforotp.com forward slash notes, I believe, you'll see the reading schedule right there. Uh, this is just kind of the way we've broken up Leviticus to kind of match the six weeks, so that way you can read along and um, as you listen to the sermons. Give me one reason why I should read Leviticus there, Be- Paul. Because God said so. Okay, uh, Kevin, give me a better reason. <laughs> Uh, because... Okay, Marty. <laughs> I don't know, know if I could take Marty's point. Because it's such an important book to understand if we're going to understand the larger narrative of the Hebrew scriptures, which will help us understand the larger narrative of the New Testament scriptures. It's such an important book. We talk about the law all the time, right? Like we talk about the law, we have all these negative things to say about the law. We've never read the law. We've never read the book of Leviticus. We actually have no idea what we're talking about. But we have a lot of opinions about it. So if we're going to have an opinion about it, we should probably read it. And Jesus uses Leviticus all the time in his ministry uh, to make huge, huge points. Absolutely. Um, He challenges the status quo using Leviticus. Like he challenges legalism using Leviticus. Which in our minds doesn't, like, we don't get how he could do that. Right. Like, Leviticus for us today is kind of the epitome of legalism. He, he challenges the Levitical code using Leviticus. Yeah. So what I hear you saying, Marty, is if you want to complain about Leviticus, make sure you read it, this series. That's right. Or if you are complaining about Leviticus, you don't understand Leviticus. <clears throat> well, thank you for the... Yeah, that's where I would go. Yeah, that's where I would go. <laughs> All right. As always, unscripted. Uh... What we wanted to talk about a little bit was this idea of priests and priesthood. Uh, Just kind of setting Leviticus in its uh, historical context as people are leaving Egypt and uh, as they um, are at Mount Sinai and this covenant is being formed, God makes this claim in Exodus 19 that they are going to be a kingdom of priests. And what we want to talk a little bit, a little bit about is uh, for these people, they would already have a reference of what a priest is, what a priest was, uh, in that um, it could, because they just came from Egypt, they they knew who the priests were. So we want to talk a little bit about that, what they what they how they would understand it, and then also look at how um, in Leviticus and not just that, but through the scriptures, God uses his um, uses uses uh, common language that they'd be familiar with. Um, anyone want to jump in on that, the idea of priest? How would they understand priest? Well, it certainly would be a foreign concept to them, like you said. They would have, uh, especially coming from Egypt, uh, even the other places that they came from. If you go to the Sumerian cultures that they're 
descendants from Abraham and those, uh, you know, his family would have come out of Chaldea. These are cultures that had priests. They understand on some level. And, and a lot of these priesthood have many of the same elements that we preached about on Sunday uh, when we had that sermon. They had some of those. They were familiar with a priest as an intercessor. Uh, they were familiar as as a priest that would stand in the gap and, and show you and tell you what God desired. But there are also some really key differences too. And I think about Egypt, where they came from. Egypt's theology was such where Pharaoh, Pharaoh was the ultimate priest. He was the ultimate king and the ultimate priest. He stood between you and the gods and made sure that everything was done correctly and that the world continued to exist. But Pharaoh couldn't be everywhere in every temple all throughout Egypt at all the time. So Pharaoh had priests, and these priests worked on behalf of Pharaoh um, in order to do Pharaoh's jobs so that the world could keep going. So you had this understanding of, well, priest, a priest is somebody who does the things that the gods demand so that the world literally won't fall apart. Like they have an understanding of how they lived within a vault and the world would come crashing down around them if they didn't do the things the gods demanded. The priest facilitated this appeasement of the gods. So they had some understandings that were similar. They also had some pretty key understandings that were really different. And some of the imagery, um, like the layout of the, the tabernacle, they would have been familiar with. You can find the same layout in some of their temples that you find in Egypt. Yeah, we actually found hieroglyphics of Ramses' war camp, which yeah. matches the exact dimensions uh, of the tabernacle. He had a courtyard where uh, only the officials were allowed, and then he had a tent, which was the exact same, dim- I don't know if it was the same measurements, but the same proportional dimensions to the, I believe it was the same di- measurements too, I'd have to go back and check. Um, but it had the same proportional dimensions as the tabernacle with a, a first room, uh, a first room where only the Hyatt ranking officials could come, and then Ramses himself would sit in like this square inner chamber, and he would sit between two griffins, these two winged creatures, where his throne which, sat. Which they called, and they called them cherubim. Exactly. Like, this is when they see this. This is not like the first time the Israelites have seen this tabernacle concept. They're like, oh, I know what God's doing here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the Canaanites were the same. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they, they used cherubim for thrones as well. Yeah. And so what you see with the tabernacle is you see a king. You see a throne room of a king. Right. And so what you were talking about, how the priests in Egypt served Pharaoh, uh, because Pharaoh is trying to keep everything in order, um, there's still this underlying assumption that this is happening in Leviticus with this priesthood. And that's true, because we are a kingdom of priests. Uh, God is king, and this is him, in some sense, sitting on a throne. and, And this is how we serve our God. Mm-hmm. In Leviticus, right, yeah, and that building that you were talking about—I don't know if this is where you're headed, Derek. But even the Canaanite temples and the pagan temples of that day are constructed the same way. In the way that the priests serve, there's always, uh, even in the Greek and Roman, the Greco-Roman tables, uh, temples—not <laughs> tables, but the temples of the Greco-Roman world have a timenos, a courtyard. They have a pronaos, which is the first room. Then they have an inner room, which is called the naos, like. This is a common template used before, during, after the tabernacle. I don't know if that's what you're getting at with the Canaanite culture, but there's a lot of similarities there. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I like the point just for the fact that <clears throat> I think this is a theme throughout the entire uh, Hebrew Bible and Old Testament. The, the God is coming and meeting us where we're at, right? He's coming and meeting Correct. his people. 
in a way that they can understand. Uh, you know, the, it's not like he's coming and he's bringing a whole completely new system and way of understanding God, but he is tweaking it, like you're saying. Yes. And they're really important little tweaks. Right. That distinguish who he is in comparison to the other gods. Yeah, I love that. And all this at the same time, uh, they're leaning on this Genesis language. Like this is creation type of language that you find over and over again, especially going back to Exodus during the creation of the tabernacle. Um, like you see these phases and then you see uh, Moses resting. Like it's calling us back to back to Genesis 1 and 2 when God creates the entire world and the world is going to be his temple and we are going to be his priests. We are the images of God. Um, and so... Yeah, the tabernacle, the tabernacle is meant to be a preview of heaven coming to earth, like what that looks like when they're both in unison. And um, so it's great that today, as Christians, um, you know, we're called to be the temple of God now. Like there's this, like we bring God's temple with us into creation. Absolutely. Did you know the tent? We call it the tent of meeting. I didn't know this until two years ago, and I looked it up. The word for meeting is the word moad which happens to be the center word in the Genesis 1 chiasm. Huh. It's the, it's the tent of seasons or the tent of Sabbaths. Yeah. It's a tent of rest. I mean, and it's, it's not inaccurate to translate a tent of meeting because that meeting can be an assembly, a festival. Um, but I just never had the right idea with that. It's an absolute callback to Genesis 1. Yeah. It's like this mobile Genesis 1 that goes everywhere. Yeah. Well, and some of the other symbols you see, like the idea of lights and separation and uh, creating space, uh, are common themes that you, you'll find in Genesis as well. So, yeah. Speaking of separation, one of the biggest things that we like run into when we talk about um, temples, one of the things that bothers us in our culture is that certain people aren't allowed in. Uh, like when you see a temple, there's only a certain amount of people that can go past this point. And then there's even a smaller amount of people that can go past this point. And there's even a smaller amount of people. And it's supposed to be communicating this idea of, of holy, teaching us how to discern. We'll talk about this more in this series. Teaching us how to discern between holy and common. But you were making a point, if you understand this, you were making a point about how Leviticus was constructed. Oh, yeah. Okay, so the, the first half of Leviticus... Uh, we're going to make some pretty generalizations to understand this, but for the most part, the first half of Leviticus, you see these descriptions of things that are holy. This is holy. That is holy. The censer is holy. The um, the menorah is holy. Just over and over again, these objects and these things are holy, and then these things are not holy. Um, you know, these things are unclean, uh, and you have all these like descriptive words, and they seem really... some For some of us, uh, they seem arbitrary or weird or out of place, and it's just repetitive and repetitive but then in near the middle of the book you see this call uh for where god says for uh, because i am holy you need to be holy and then the back half of the book transitions and now it's a call for us to be holy for us to be clean for us to be pure and so what you find is that the tabernacle and the levitical law is one massive object lesson for how we need to do this ourselves uh, and another thing that even makes it makes this point even more important is the first part of Leviticus looks at the inside of the of the tabernacle but th- we often assume that that's where God's concerned ends as far as the book of Leviticus is concerned but that's not the case because the back half of Leviticus talks about what happens when we leave the tabernacle like the the tabernacle is was always meant just to be 
not, I don't want to say just to be, but to, to be an object lesson for us to learn from it. This is what it looks like when heaven merges with earth. This is what it looks like when we as priests, as the images of God, uh, are finally in right partnership with our God. This is how we serve our God. Uh, and like we, we need to be a distinguishable people, as you said earlier. Um, and, we, and not only that, there's also this idea of wholeness that Leviticus is kind of toying with. When you look at animals without blemish and priests without blemish, um, to come to be restored with God is to be restored to wholeness. And so we as priests are called to pull people in, to, uh, to help them become more and more whole. It's not about who can't get in, it's about how we can restore them back to wholeness and unity with God again. Yeah. I, I wonder how much we, even to this day, miss the fact, like you said, the tabernacle is is a gigantic object lesson. It's something that was a tool that God wanted to use to teach us greater truths. And we know that throughout history we lost the plot. Mm -hmm. Because when Jesus gets here, one of the things he's so frustrated by is what we've turned the temple into, what, uh, what the people of God have has turned the temple into, because they missed the points that they were supposed to learn through the very temple that they're now mm -hmm. abusing. And I think even today, 2,000 years later, we look at the temple and the tabernacle as the place where God lived, but that's how pagans saw a temple. And it seems to me that God's trying to teach his people something far wider and deeper than how the pagans saw a temple. It mm -hmm. wasn't just a place where God lived. That was not... God God made his house a mobile tent. Like, yeah. it wasn't... He was going to live wherever his people went. The temple was to teach those people how they were going to live. It was a missional, it's a missional object lesson. Yeah. lesson. I think that comes up again, even when David's talking with God about this whole, this yep. whole situation and, and uh, David wants to build the temple and God's like, Hey, I'm good with the tent. This is, this is not the point of what I'm trying to do. <clears throat> You're just kind of probably feeling a little guilty that you have a palace made out of cedar and gold and all these things, and you want to build one for me, so you can feel better about yourself. And uh, even that's Solomon, not I'm asking for. Even when Solomon builds the temple uh, at the dedication, I believe he says uh, that God doesn't need to live in a house built by human hands. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, he might even say, uh, I need to look it up, but he might even say that he doesn't live in a house created by human hands. Like there's still this understanding through Hebraic scriptures that this. Isn't this is not the these four walls are not the boundary of where God dwells. Uh, God dwells uh, with the hearts and the praises of His people. Uh, right, and you see references like that. You see Psalm. Um, so I just uh, I'm flipping my numbers. Is it one thirty or one thirteen? Where can I go from Your presence? From in the Psalm, where can I go from your presence? It doesn't matter if I go up to the heavens, if I go down to Sheol. Yeah, you're always there. Even even the darkness is li as light to you, mm -hmm. which might be another reference back to Genesis again. Right. Um, which is interesting when God responds to Solomon's dedication and prayer. Mm -hmm. God comes and, and says, when, when the people want to repent, and obviously turn and seek my face, that's the famous passage, but the larger conversation, God says, when they come back to this temple... Which wouldn't make any sense if it's just the house of God. Mm -hmm. But if it does make sense if it's a learning space, if it's an object lesson. When my people want to turn around and repent and come back here and learn what it means 
to follow my ways, then I'll heal them. Hmm. And it wouldn't make any sense, God's response, if it's just where he lives. Like, if my people turn and then come to this place, why? Uh, just mm-hmm. to pay you homage? No, yeah. to learn. This is going to teach them and remind them of what their call is. It's going to teach them how to be holy. It also acts as a discipline, a, a physical act that we, that we do in order to repent, in order to adjust course. Um, which might be something, might be a good thing for us to implement now today. Um, like one of, the, one of the lessons we've talked about with the tabernacles, if you create a space, he will fill it. And so I think oftentimes in our life we need to create a space. Like we need, we need to have a physical location. We need to have a, 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 brand, a blocked off time block. Uh, we need to do something. We need to tangibly something uh, in our life to, uh, to, in some sense, fill this need that the temple was provided for for God's people. Right. Like we need, we need to have our own tabernacle. Uh, our own, I would even say rituals, our own systems. Um, and, I, and I think we are a people that need that. We are a people, like we're created in such a way that we need to have these uh, tangible, immovable objects that anchor us down in life. Yeah. Isn't that just the church building? I thought that's what, what everything was surrounded by. It was supposed to be about the church, right? The building. <laughs> Derek's sarcasm is a nice touch to our footnotes podcast. Yeah. You're getting a little serious there, Paul. I get it. Lighten it up. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry the youth pastor is being a little too serious. Uh, so everything with what you were just saying, skipping what Derek just said, uh, it, what's funny is when, when Jesus does does come, when uh, you know John 1, when uh, the word flesh sets up his tent, tabernacles yeah. with us, yeah. you find a priesthood who's just who's more like the priesthood of Egypt than the priesthood that God calls him to be. Absolutely. A priesthood that is about power and recognition and fame right. and gathering wealth and prestige. Yeah. Um, a priesthood that wants to keep people out and control them. Yes. Uh, a people that, um, that they want to control the system. Uh, anyone that threatens that. which right. is no churches do that today, thank goodness. But yeah, we all grew out of that. Yeah, um, but going that's beyond, our sarcasm. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> but going beyond that, I think it's of spreading. I think of Ezekiel then, when God leaves the temple. Oh yeah. And we often look at that. We're like, oh, this is so bad. The wrath of God. He's leaving his people. He's not. He's going with his people. Right. Because he comes back with them at the end. Yeah. He he goes in the direction of their exile. And then he returns from the direction of their exile when they come back. I think that's why the Jews were able to make that transition after the temple was destroyed. Because they had learned through the story of their people that the point wasn't the brick and the stone and the mortar temple. The point was the people mm-hmm. temple, which is an idea the New Testament will pick up on. But I know Abraham Joshua Heschel, you were talking about having disciplines and creating spaces. And it's funny that... Uh, Heschel will talk about Sabbath as a cathedral of time. Hmm. So when you when you observe Sabbath, you're building a cathedral, you're building a space, but it's not a space in physicality, it's a space in time, and it makes the whole rest of your life holy. Hmm. It becomes an object lesson. And, and we find that God's building on this object lesson and making it even more and more clear, um, like when you start working through the prophets, like in Deuteronomy, there's the question, what does God require of you, a man? And I forget what it says, but it's basically to keep his law and commandments and da-da-da. But then in Micaiah, not, not Micaiah, sorry, that's my son's name. Um, 
Malachi. Malachi, thank you. Uh, <laughs> what does God require of you, O oh man? Like, it's the same question. We expect the same answer that we read in Deuteronomy, but it's different. It's to uh, love justice, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly well, with your Micah. God. Micah? Micah? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> I didn't know where you are going. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Micah, by the way, is a shortened form of Micaiah. Good to know. Just, anyone wants to know. Throwing that out there. Yeah. All right. Uh, anyway. Uh, makes me wonder if the church today has some object lessons we should learn from. Well, that, just just real quick, I think you you threw this out, and I, you might have mentioned this book before, but the the book Sabbath by Abraham Joshua Heschel is a super easy read, story based. Yeah, might be something that our parishioners would be willing to. Yeah, absolutely. Up. It's easy to read and yet incredibly profound. Exactly. It's like a small little book, but every sentence you have to like take a break because your head hurts. But it's really good. It's really, really yeah. good. I would assume um, Rabbi Foreman has some decent stuff on it too. Yeah, yeah. Well, especially through his, you know, the one stuff I've kept up on is uh, his Aleph Beta site, um, following his parasha teachings, and he's got lots of good stuff mm-hmm. just in his parasha teachings that alone. You know, uh, one thing I was looking at buying, and so I can't officially sponsor this, but um, I was looking at buying Peter Lightheart's lectures on Leviticus, and so if you're if just as another possible resource for people, if out you there. want to buy his lectures for Paul, is what he's saying. Well, you could buy it for me too. <laughs> I would love that if you. Christmas is right around the corner. Um, if you bring a gift to the priest, uh, oh. <laughs> and it's only it's only it's it's only ten bucks, uh, which so for, for Peter Lightheart's yeah. stuff, like um, I'm starting to work through his commentary on Kings, and I'm already like. Sure. Yeah. Like I, I'll read a few pages and I have to stop because it's too good. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's good. Mm. Yeah, lots of good stuff out there. And actually, speaking of which, Kings then becomes a commentary on Exodus. Sure. Uh, okay. See, oh, oh, sorry. All right. Anyway, anything else we want to talk about with the uh, Leviticus <laughs> priesthood things we're talking about? Uh. Kevin, you you wanna? No, I haven't. <laughs> I was gonna make a joke. <laughs> uh, we, by the way, Kevin is an, another one of um, Rabbi Marty Tadman. Tadman. <laughs> <laughs> this whole end of this podcast just needs to be completely. <laughs> no, no, we need to keep it. This is what happens when Aaron's not here. Uh, it's a reward for me. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Kevin is Marty Solomon's. Uh, Talmudine, his disciple, one of his disciples, so he's joining us this week. You can watch some good YouTube videos at Marty Tavern, yeah. though. So, so uh, uh, let's end with this question. Uh, with what we've talked about with uh, languages and temple and priest, uh, what are some, some practical applications? Like, uh, we as priests today, how should we act? Just from these basic conversations we've had thus far. Like, what are some proactive things for us to do? I think that is a great conversation for your care group this week. Oh, you know what? You'd be quiet. <laughs> it's not like the servant had four applications about things for you to do either. I was just more thinking about the, from the podcast. Um, I, I know one thing we talked about is the co- how God uses common language to tell a story of atonement and redemption. And maybe that's something we could do. Um, like I, I, I still remember, like, you know, uh, intro to Greek and learning these Greek words. Um, and then finding out that they're, they, they were common words, like they were words that non-Christians used and that the Christians leveraged to make a point. 
But today, uh, we've uh, Christianized them. And so when we talk about things like redemption and holiness and justification, like our society no longer knows what we're referring to. So how can we start, in some sense, stealing back from our culture these, these word pictures that communicate effectively what we're trying to preach? Yeah, and I think that one of the things that that does is it makes us become people that are moving forward. True. We're calling creation forward. We're out in front, and we're like far too often the church is caught trying to go back somewhere. We're going to go back. We're going to make something great again. We're going to whatever we're going to do. We're always, we're always going to go back because backwards is... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> There's no political commentary. We've denied None at all. <laughs> I wish the other party's slogan worked because it would work out just as well. But we're always trying to go backwards. And God's not behind us. God's not behind us. God is in front of us. Which was the picture of the tabernacle again. Yeah, absolutely. God's in front of us. So if we did the things that you're talking about, if we reclaimed culture, if we... Ask the question of how can we take common language and go somewhere with it? That would force us to be in front rather than stomping our feet and insisting that the whole conversation goes back. Now, with all that to say, there's still a place of tradition. There's still a place of having those. I'm even thinking with you, like with your tassels. Like there's these things that we need to hold on to. Correct. um, That create us as a distinct people. Right. Distinguished people. Yeah, it's one of the hard parts of the conversation because yeah. there's a power in icon, there's a power in tangible, there's a power in ritual. And one of the things that Judaism has wrestled with for centuries is when do you hold on to something and when do you change something in order to keep that conversation out in front of us? When is the, con- when is the thing holding you back and when is the thing pulling you forward? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's driven a lot of their decisions of what to keep. Things like tassels, well, the tassel still pulls us forward. It still has an ability to talk to us about what lies in front of us, not what comes behind us. But that's always one of the tough questions. Well, I think your point there about God being the one who goes ahead of us helps us answer those questions in each generation, that he's the one who's going to help us make those decisions because he's taken us to someplace. And until we get behind him and are willing to follow him we're not going to know how to answer those questions well I don't think that's a great point that satisfies me this message was approved by Solomon for president (laughs) (laughs) with with VP Kevin no no (laughs) okay Solomon this ballot's only big enough for the one of us (laughs) uh you're probably not joking either on that one. Uh, all right, guys. Hey, thanks for joining us this week on Footnotes. Uh, just as a reminder, uh, start reading Leviticus. Get in there. Dig it apart. Uh, find something that is intriguing, that's confusing, and uh, ask some questions and look for the answers. Until next week, God bless. Thanks for listening to this week's Footnotes, and please keep the discussion going. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can connect with us by emailing comment at liferotp.com or find us on Facebook and Twitter at liferotp. You can find the individual members of the teaching team on Twitter as well, or just visit us on a Sunday morning and connect face-to-face. We hope you'll join us again next week. And until then, God bless.